0: There are a lot of sayings out there that are almost biblical, almost scripture. For instance, we've heard the saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, You might think that's in the Bible, but it is not. It is a general truth that, unfortunately, some parents have had to discover the hard way But it's not quite from Scripture. The closest we get is Proverbs 13.24, which says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Another saying along these lines would be this one. When God closes a door, he opens a window. I'm sure many of you have heard that one. When God closes a door, he opens a window. Now, God certainly is in control of our circumstances, and He can provide for us in unexpected ways. However, if you thought that that was from the Bible, you would be mistaken. It's actually from the 1965 musical, The Sound of Music. There's one more I'll share with you. This one's a little bit more pertinent to our text of Scripture today. God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> I'm glad to hear the groans there. No, that is not scripture. Christians will often bandy that one about, and it's usually why, to encourage responsible behavior that is in keeping with godly living. And we can understand that motivation However, the saying, of course, as you've already noted, is not from the Bible. It's actually from Benjamin Franklin's 1957 Poor Richard's Almanac. The saying predates that, actually. It was popularized by Poor Richard's Almanac, but it is not biblical in origin. In fact, here's the truth God often helps those who cannot and Do not help themselves. We could think about this in terms of salvation, couldn't we? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Even when talking about good works in which the saved believer engages, outside of Christ, Scripture says we can do nothing. That's what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5. And in this account, we see Jesus heal a man who exercises no faith in him. A man who doesn't even appear to say thank you afterward. Now before we get into the text, there's a little bit of introduction that we need as we are entering into John chapter 5 and entering into a new movement in the book of John. First, you might find it strange that we left chapter 4 with Jesus getting into Galilee and it seems like he just got there and now he's in Jerusalem once again. It's important to remember two things. First, there was more than one feast which would call faithful Jews from other places in Israel down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem and to the temple. Second, there are three words beginning verse 1, after these things. And those are some very vague words. We don't know how long after the things of chapter 4 that chapter 5 is discussing. It's a very indefinite time frame. Meaning that Jesus could have been in Galilee for a long time And we'll see in a few minutes that that is, in fact, the case. The third thing here to note is that the Apostle John is writing this gospel to fill in the blanks that were left by the other three or the first three gospels. His goal is not to create a complete gospel account himself, because Many people had already read in the decades before he wrote the gospel according to John. In in those preceding decades, they had already read Matthew and Mark and Luke. He doesn't need to repeat all of that. He is simply filling in a lot of the blanks. Of course, he will repeat some of the important points. But when it comes to why he's writing this gospel, it is to... To provide some information that you wouldn't otherwise have, and it is to highlight Christ in his supremacy. Now, with all that in mind, John supplies this information, which follows the start of the public ministry of Christ. And when we get to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, we are getting to what is actually at the beginning of some of the other Gospels. Well, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, uh, we could look as a, at a parallel there. Mark verse, or chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, all three of these mention... That he goes up to Galilee. And that reconciles with the end of John chapter 4. At this point then we would expect uh, that Jesus would continue in Galilee. And again Luke 4 there. He announces his ministry at Nazareth. Following those first three gospels then. We read about him then calling the four again who had spent some time fishing in Galilee. Then we read about Jesus' teaching in Capernaum. Then we read about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, as well as others. Then we read about the call of Matthew. And then we read about the dispute regarding fasting. All of that takes place before John chapter 5. But here, once we get to John chapter 5, the Apostle John here supplies almost an entire chapter of information that is absent from the other three Gospels. And similarly, the next chapter, which comes again, John chapter 6, comes after a gap of time, which the other Gospels adequately cover. So again John is supplying us information which would give us a more complete information or more complete picture I should say of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. And John's gospel does something else here. It begins as we are moving through these highlighted moments, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, all the way Through chapter 12, we are seeing a growing trend of hostility and opposition to Jesus Christ. In fact, we're going to see all Israel, both the Galileans and the Judeans, rejecting the message of Jesus Christ. Now, I point that out to say this that's the context of this healing this is where we start to see the opposition grow and the rejection of christ grow you say well what's happening with this healing well we are seeing jesus seeking out someone who can't save himself who is not going to save himself and jesus takes compassion on such a one And I hope that you'll find encouragement in that. As we continue to look at that, we'll also see him, well, healing someone who can't help himself. And so, let's look at the fact that he is taking compassion on the sick. Verses 1-6. through After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who are sick, the blind, the lame, the withered, and then... The bracketed area waiting for the moving of the waters for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he was had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? As I noted before, verse 1 is somewhat vague on information. We're not entirely sure when this was because John only says that there was a feast of the Jews. There are, in fact, three feasts which would require a pilgrimage. And one of those would be the Passover. It's likely not the Passover because in John chapter 2, John names the Passover. And so there would be no reason for him to be vague at this point if this is the Passover. That only leaves us two other feasts. The Feast of Pentecost, which would come after the Feast of the Passover on the calendar. And so that's possible. Or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also possible. See, we can't say for certain. And maybe that's because John doesn't feel like that is an important point for us. He is simply explaining why Jesus is in Jerusalem. There happened to be a feast. And so that's why Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem once again. In verse 2 then, John begins to set the scene with detail. There was a pool next to the Sheep Gate named Bethesda. Now it's interesting because the word gate doesn't appear in the original language. And so if you have a New American Standard Bible... Uh, you will see the word gate in italics. Italics, uh, if you did not know this, they are not for emphasis in the text of Scripture. <laughs> they are to indicate that a word has been supplied for the for the clarity of translation. Uh, the King James says the same thing, although the King James here uses the word market instead of gate. And that's because there is a little bit of discussion as to what... What is meant here by the sheep, by the sheep. Is it by the sheep market? Is it by the sheep gate? Most of the translations do opt for the gate there. And I think there's some historical reasoning behind that. One study notes that this was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem near the temple through which sheep were brought for sacrifice. And uh, this is a this is a gate that is mentioned in a few passages, like where they are rebuilding the wall in Nehemiah chapter three. We read about the sheep gate specifically being built there, and that's where they would bring in the sheep for sacrifice. John must have known the entrance well, and he must have assumed that others would as well. And we'll see why that is in just a second. Edersheim notes something here. He says, the narrative transports us at once to what at that time seems to have been a well-known locality in Jerusalem. All we know is that it was a pool enclosed with five porches by the sheep market, presumably close to the sheep gate. This, as seems most likely, open from the very busy northern suburb of markets, bazaars, and workshops eastward upon the road which led over the, to the Mount of Olives and Bethany to Jericho and so this is the scene that is being set here for us and it's interesting because we can verify all of this You know, it's, it's interesting as we are reading the Bible we can find these places, these places actually existed in time and uh, we can actually uh, verify them historically first of all there was a copper scroll that was discovered at Qumran and this particular scroll dates to about the year 35, which would put it right after the death of Christ. And it mentions a place called Beth Eshtatain helping us to see that perhaps Beth Esda uh, is actually a possible name here, uh, as some of the manuscripts, Greek manuscripts read. Second, this pool was still visible in the fourth century. Now this is this would be after the Romans come in and sack Jerusalem. Remember, they tore down the temple, didn't leave a stone upon another. However, some places of Jerusalem survived, and I believe it was a crusader who who happened to be in Jerusalem who noted that even later on. Uh, again, it, it be it, it was somewhat buried to through time but in the 1890s archaeologists again unearthed it and they saw yeah there are five porticos there there are five uh five porches there and so that means again despite the Roman sacking Jerusalem John could say even at the point that he's writing this after the sacking of Jerusalem that there is this there and that and so he uses the present tense there not just him mem- uh, remembering it so vividly he says this is there and of course it still was there when John wrote even though he's writing after the fall of Jerusalem and this name that he highlights it, it could mean um, variously the house of mercy or the house of outpouring now why what does that mean the house of, house of Mercy makes sense, I guess, if there are sick people there. What does outpouring mean? Well, the pool there was actually supplied by sulfury spring water that would flow in through an intermittent spring surrounding the pool were those five covered porches or porticos, which contained all manner of sick people which were these people were blind lame and withered as we read here and they all believed as many as many people still believe today that that the spring water can have medicinal properties on the body and so that's why they are there now, they may have believed something else, and this is where we get into some, some sticky uh, subjects here uh, with Bible translation and Bible transmission. You'll notice uh, if you have a New American Standard that this is in brackets. Some of your other Bibles may have this in brackets. Uh, You may also have asterisks uh, beside this text. Uh, Some of you may have footnotes that explain something here. Some of you may just have the verse end with the mention of the sick who are by the pool and then the next verse is verse 5 and if you're looking, uh, we would say John chapter 5 verse 4 and you'd say there is no John chapter 5 verse 4 in my Bible. Some of your Bibles are like that. Still others, particularly those with King James translations, may see nothing at all amiss in this text. And you're saying, what is this text that's being highlighted here? Because I don't see that in my Bible. Well, as you know, the Bible did not come to us in English. It didn't um, fall down uh, from the sky um, as the King James translation or any other translation. The original language of the New Testament is a language known as Koine Greek, Koine Greek. God chose that language for his inspired word. And beginning in the first century, the early churches, as they received uh, a scroll or a, a, a letter from one of the apostles, they would begin immediately copying it. That was one of the tasks someone in the church would, that would be their ministry, I guess you could say, they would copy that so that when they returned the scroll or the letter uh, to, to whoever had given it to them, or they send it along to the next church, they had a copy for themselves, which is actually a smart way of doing that. It just took a little bit longer than our Xerox machine in the other room to do that. Now, people in this copying process obviously made mistakes sometimes. They accidentally skipped words or added words and Uh, We can actually look at some of the manuscripts and and say, okay, this person may not have even been able to read as they were copying it. They're just copying symbols on a page. They don't actually know what the symbols are. It's interesting to see all of that. But uh, this copying process happened very, very quickly. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why we're confident that no one person could be able to gather up all the Greek uh, manuscripts of the. Apostles and prophets, and and just be able to make wholesale changes because everybody had a copy. It was just going out everywhere, so so no one person could gather up all of these copies and uh, create problems for us in the future. Now that we are uh, roughly two thousand years later. We can look at the many thousands of copies which survive. And by the way, that is more than of any book in antiquity. More copies of the New Testament exist um, from o- over all the years than any other book uh, of antiquity, which uh, I think is part of God's preservation process. And as we're looking at all those copies, we can use God-given common sense to track down where and when any such mistake could happen in the text, where someone maybe spelled something wrong or skipped a word or added a word, uh, etc., In the case of the ending of verse 3, where we have the brackets beginning, waiting for the movement of the waters, and the entirety of verse 4, it appears that an early scribe added a marginal note. You know what a marginal note is? And in my Bible, I have wide margins, right? And I can add a note in the margin of the text. Uh, This scribe appears to have done just that. He added a note to explain a belief or the superstition which arose in regards to Bethesda. And it helped to explain the meaning of verse 7 where the guy talks about the stirring of the water. Now the next copyist comes along. And the next copyist is looking at this text, and he appears to not be able to understand whether this marginal note was meant to be in the text. Was this something that someone added because he thought it was missing, or was it something that he had added just to simply explain, like a footnote? Well what did he do what would you do well i want to make sure that i'm copying everything and so he added the the text there as though it was part of the text just to be sure the earlier copies that we have then they don't contain uh, verse 4 or uh, the end of verse 3 but the copies after that point in time where this guy added that note well those copies all included this and those copies became part of um, what was prominent in the uh, Byzantine Empire. Uh, this is this would be part of what would become part of a small minority number of texts called the Textus Receptus. And then later on we have the wider text known as the Majority Text. The uh, King James uses the, what we call the Textus Receptus and the New King James the Majority Text which includes the Textus Receptus. The Greek tradition that um, that's there would include this. However, many of the copies in Africa and, and, and those other places which began to disappear because of Muslim invasions, some of those copies that we have surviving today did not contain this. Older doesn't always mean better, but we can take a look at some of those older manuscripts and say, okay, we can track down using God-given common sense. Okay, it does look like this got added in, and that's why this kind of debate happens. So there's a little bit of a history here on Bible transmission. The reason we're considering this is because we can have solid confidence that we have the scripture accurately transmitted to us today. I want you to be sure of that. You know, it's interesting because some skeptics liken the copying of Scripture. It's been copied, and you'll, you may even hear some people in your family repeat this. It's been copied over and over and over and over again. And you can't, you can't even tell if what's there today is anything like what was there before. I mean, haven't you ever played telephone? You know, the message goes around the room, and you know, sometimes it's, it doesn't even sound the same on the other end. Well, we actually played telephone once as a, as a group, right? And we, we saw that, okay, yeah, that is actually the end result of telephone a lot of times. And it's kind of funny to hear that. But why is it funny? Because we have everyone in the room with us to ask. And we can see exactly who it was. Oh, it was you back there who changed the message. Uh, You got got it wrong from the person before you. And why can we tell that? Because we can see that all these people had it right. And that was where the problem came. Not to call you out, but (laughs) it was her, yes. With all these Greek manuscripts, guess what? We have everybody in the room. And so if there's a change, we can see exactly where the change is. We do our homework as Christians. Listen, none of this is done in a closed room. There's not uh, a a smoke-filled back room somewhere with a cabal of people who are controlling what the text of Scripture says, and you never know. No, we know exactly what it is. That's why your footnotes and everything in your Bibles explain all of this. This is not like uh, the New World Translation of the Scriptures, quote unquote translation that the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have. Who translated it? Well, we don't know. Well, we do know, but you know, it's not in the translation, and we, we don't get those kinds of notes in those kinds of Bibles because there is an agenda behind that kind of thing. What do we, what do we have? We as Christians we show our homework. <laughs> And it's all out there for the whole world to see. And anyone can go and obviously if you knew Greek, you would have to do some, some study and research into this. But anybody could look into this. It's not hidden away. The Catholic Church has not changed the Bible secretly and we just don't know about it. No, we have everything before us. And so if it's all out in the open, I don't think any skeptic can credibly claim conspiracy or unreliability with the Bible. No, it hasn't been changed over time, and we can prove it. What do you mean you can prove it? It's been copied so many times. How could you prove it? Because we still have the other copies. (laughs) We still have a lot of the older copies. Do we still have the originals? No. No. I think that's within God's providence because we would probably worship them. You know, like the people of Israel worshiped the uh, those staff with the bronze serpent uh, and other things. Yeah, we would sometimes make those mistakes, but we can reliably say, yes, the Bible is accurately transmitted to us. By the way, most of the supposed Variations in the text, and there are a lot of variations that people could point to. Most of them, the vast majority of them, are just spelling errors, word order changes and maybe every once in a while there's a word added the original text said Lord Jesus and someone came along and they're just used to writing Lord Jesus Christ and maybe they added Lord Jesus Christ okay well we're talking about the same person and so these are not big changes here but with a text of scripture like this one you're like oh wow look at that there's a huge portion there that maybe wasn't in the original text should this worry me no because we can point that out, we can say yes. We can look at these original texts and see what the original language said. We know this; it's not being hidden away from us. Now, with all that said, what other considerations could we have? For, well, if God was sending an angel here, could He do that? Yeah, yes, He could. Could God send an angel to heal? Yes, He could. And if God did that, then that's within God's prerogative, and we would just simply have to accept it. But just like the earliest manuscripts don't mention this, the earliest Bible teachers don't mention it either. You know, we, we have commentary on the whole New Testament. It's been said we can reconstruct the New Testament just from what the teachers taught on the New Testament, the early teachers. But none of the early teachers mention The ending of verse 3 on into verse 4. The first one to mention it, it seems, is Tertullian. And he comes in the late part of the 2nd century into the 3rd century. Uh, This text also contains vocabulary. In this little portion of text, it contains vocabulary that is foreign to John. And even some vocabulary that is foreign to the entire New Testament. Moreover, it's, while well, it's still possible that the sick believe that the stirring of the water was angelic in origin, that doesn't make it so. And more than that, uh, we don't even know that that's what they thought because they could have just thought that the bubbling of the waters were special in their own. Like, no, this is a special part, or this is a fresh part of the spring, and so maybe that's what caused this. There's something else, too. Uh, uh, Brother Jorge was joking about how difficult it is to get into shepherd's conference sometimes into the main sanctuary. And there's a little bit of shoving. Sometimes that happens and that shouldn't be. I remember there being warnings even uh, or, or cautions whenever uh, I, I was attending there that you don't run. Don't, <laughs> because apparently that's what was happening. But think about being sick by the pool here. that's exactly what would be happening if the first person into the water is the person to get healed. Well then, there would be some shoving and pushing. And as one Bible teacher says here, does God really heal someone because they can push and shove and bully his way into the pool first? And that's a question for us to consider. And finally, an angel healing in this context would seem to be in competition with the healing of Christ. Christ's healing is clearly greater in the text. This man obviously hadn't even been experiencing healing for 38 years and Christ with a word can heal him. Or he could have just waited long. Maybe he could have gotten to that angel. Well, maybe, or maybe that was just a superstitious belief on his part. Now, you may disagree with this assessment, but it seems to be the one that's the most faithful with the text. And so continuing on now with the inspired text, we read this. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And so this illness had robbed the man of his mobility. Meaning he couldn't walk or move well. Perhaps he was somewhat paralyzed. Presumably he could move some because he would made some effort to get to the pool, but he was never first. So this means that he was unable to help himself to the apparent miracle in the water. And some have looked at this and said, okay, well, if he was sick for 38 years, maybe there's a reason God allowed that sickness to happen for so long. And so some have tried to draw parallels between the time that Israel uh, spent in the wilderness wandering uh, and what this man was enduring. Others try to see in the pool the law of Moses. Uh, Those are interesting interpretations. I don't think they fully satisfy D.A. Carson notes something here, though. He says, if John intends any symbolism, it may be that the purification pots of Cana could neither produce nor be mistaken for the new wine of the kingdom in chapter 2, and the water from Jacob's well could could not satiate the ultimate thirst of religious people in chapter 4. And so as such, the promises of a merely superstitious religion have no power to transform the truly needy. I think that's a good one right there. And I'll just repeat that last line from him. The promises of a merely superstitious religion have no power to transform the truly needy. This man thought that he could be delivered if he could just get to these waters because supposedly an angel was stirring them or he believed something else, but he believed that the miracle came from an act of his own, not from God. Now, Clearly, if these waters could have helped, this man was in no position to obtain help on his own. He couldn't get there. And so Jesus comes. So we read in verse 4. Now it may be surprising. Why would a rabbi be there? Why wouldn't a rabbi be in the temple? Why would he be around all of these sick people? Why would he be there where all these poor souls are there, perhaps even defiling himself by being in their presence? Well, let me tell you, that's exactly why Jesus came. To rescue the sick, to rescue the needy. One commentary notes, he concentrated on people in need. He visited the pool below the temple where the helpless dregs of society lay in a pathetic state. Most proper people, proper people, probably avoided these places. Where they had to pass among the sick and suffering, both because it was uncomfortable and because of the potential violation of ritual purity rules. But Jesus went out of his way to visit such a place. This is our sovereign and compassionate Lord. He is not bound by rules of proper etiquette as it comes to situations like this no he will go down to where the people are in need he will be with the sinners he will be with the tax collectors and he will be with the sick and somehow he knew about this man we're not told how we're just told that he simply knew not that he learned but he knew that he had been there for a while. This could be yet another display of our Lord's supernatural knowledge. He knew about this man. And as we think about that, I I just love this from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says, Those that have been long in affliction may comfort themselves with this, that God keeps account how long and knows our frame God keeps account how long and he knows our frame I don't know if you're suffering this morning some of you are other people may not understand that healthy people may not know what that's like but the Lord knows the Lord knows And our compassionate Lord comes to this man who obviously has been suffering for a long time. And he asks a question that we recognize, we who read the New Testament, we recognize as a prelude to healing. Do you wish to get well? He asks this question. One commentary notes, in such a question would focus the man's attention on him. It would stimulate his will and it would raise his hopes. See, it may be that this man's sickness was caused by sin, especially as we read a little further here today and we we see Jesus say, "Do, uh, do not sin any longer so that nothing worse will befall you. Maybe that this sickness was due in part to sin. Not all sickness is due to sin, but some is. And, you know, even with uh, the effects of sin ravaging the body, some people are still very happy to remain in their sin. And so, this is a very good question Do you wish to get well? You know, we often ask in biblical counseling, Questions like this, after we hear what the problem is, what do you want me to do about this? Or, would you like to see change? These are important questions to really get the person to think, okay, am I just complaining? Or, is there something that I would like to see happen as a result of this time? Jesus asks, Do you wish to get well? He comes to this man who cannot help himself and he expresses compassion upon him. But unfortunately, this is not as well received as we would have expected. And even in that, our Lord patiently remains with this man, as we see in our next point. Jesus heals he who can't heal himself. And so this sick man answers, verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. As we think about this and Jesus asks, Do you wish to get well? From this man's perspective, Jesus asks a dumb question. That is a stupid question. Why would you even ask me that? Now, the verse does begin with a somewhat respectful sir. This could be translated Lord, but there's sufficient reason why it's not. Just like the woman at the well, sir, you have nothing to draw with. (laughs) Here, the man is saying, sir, it's it's like a respectful, but I'm now about to talk down to you tone of voice here. He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. There's no indication that he'll honor the Lord. And there's no indication he expects anything from Jesus. And so he continues with this, this statement I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. He doesn't just simply answer with a yes or a no. Because he doesn't expect anything from Jesus, he instead chooses to complain about his predicament, which I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it was a frustrating predicament to be in. But he had been there for 38 years. He had the kind of faith that says, I need to be by the pool. But he lost every race for the pool in 38 years. That is a long losing streak when it comes to races, right? And I can understand a person being a little frustrated with that. Incidentally, as you think about that, who, who are the people making it to the pool? It's probably the people who are a little bit more well than the people who really needed it. And so what do we see? We see a lack of charity even among the weakest of us that's proof of the universal depravity of the human heart. No one was willing to step aside and say, you've been here for a while. Why don't you take this one? No one was willing to say, hey, let me pick you up and carry you over there. No, everyone was saying, I got to get there first. I got to get there first. And what did this man expect of Jesus? Probably nothing different. If he had some dim hope of anything, it definitely wasn't that Jesus would supernaturally heal him. How many people do you meet along the course of an average day who have the ability to supernaturally heal you? But This was only Jesus who could do this, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. And so if he had some dim hope of of something, it would be this, perhaps Jesus or this guy who's asking him this dumb question would become sympathetic. And maybe he'll wait with him for the next stirring of the waters and maybe he'll put him into the water. But uh, no one's done that in 38 years. Why would that happen now? So he doesn't ask. He's likely just embittered at this point. Which we can understand, but that that's the tone in which we would have to read this. Carson, obviously thinking little of this man, uh, goes on to note that these words read like the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. <laughs> this is a man who is completely unable he can't get to the pool himself to save himself. He can't take care of himself physically. And you know, the one who can take care of him spiritually, he's not making a very good impression with, right? He doesn't even know that this is the savior of the world he's talking to. So Why? Why would Jesus choose to heal such a man? We're not told. But the truth is this. God saves the unsavable all the time. God saves the unsavable all the time. And so Jesus looks down to this man. He's not put off by the attitude of this man. He says to this man, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. He says to this man, essentially, you're healed. You are healed. I don't know if he instantly believed that. But then he looks down and sees that his legs look different. And he can move his toes. You know, it is incredible to see just how powerful Jesus' word is. He didn't even touch the man. We saw with the healing of, of the nobleman's son in the, at the end of chapter 4. He didn't even need to be in the vicinity to heal. He didn't need to first examine the man and say, Okay, well, let's look at your legs. Let's, let's, let me pull out my stethoscope. Or whatever the equivalent was that they had back then, let me listen to your heart. let me see if I can identify what the problem is. This man doesn't evidence just moderate improvement. like oh yeah, okay, well, let me take this pin I'll poke your I'll, I'll poke the bottom of your foot. tell me if you feel something. i I think I felt that I'm, I'm not sure I think I felt that though. okay, okay. well, then, you know, see me again next week and <laughs> No, what do we read? Immediately the man became well and he picked up his pallet and began to walk. It is really sad out there. A lot of people using the name of Christ for sordid gain. And there are false faith healers out there who claim the ability to heal people. But they end up Healing, healing people, perhaps in stages, like treatments. We might see something that we think is spectacular in the moment. A person is pulled up onto the stage in a wheelchair, and the person says, "The faith healer says you're healed," and the guy in the wheelchair kind of kind of stands up, and he's a little shaky.
1: And then he has to sit back down.
0: And we're like, oh, look at the power of God. And then they carry the man off or they wheel him back off. He's not been healed. Most often, they don't even bring wheelchairs up. And I've heard from people who have gone to those faith healing events. And they have the wheelchair and the obvious uh, problems sectioned off somewhere in the back. And those people are never invited up on the stage. Usually it's people who don't have obvious problems when you look at them. Maybe it's pain. And so they go and they get healed, supposedly, and and they report a lessening of the pain. A lot of such instances can be explained by simple psychology. There's been only a psychosomatic improvement. In fact, that may even explain what was actually happening at Bethesda. Because it was the ones who are well who were getting to the pool first. And then they say they're healed. Leaving the people who are unwell to, say, to continue to cling on to a false hope that if they could just make it one day, they could also be healed. And in fact... The only people being healed are those who have woes that are the kind best treated by good mineral soak. But when our Lord miraculously heals, he heals instantly and he heals clearly. This is the God, remember, this is the God who can speak, let there be light. And you know what Genesis 1-3 says right after that? And there was light. It can be seen. See, this is the Lord who can heal in such a way that it defies any natural explanation. That's what a miracle is, by the way. It's something that is actually a suspension of the natural laws that God has created in this world. What kind of laws would we be talking about here? Well, if this man had been so sick for 38 years that he could barely move, what would happen to him? His muscles would have atrophied. It would have been obvious to anyone looking at him. And if there was something that we could accomplish through the providence of modern medical science... This man would have required, even after we fixed whatever was wrong with him, he would have required months of physical therapy to get those muscles back up to the point where he could regain full mobility. And yet, at the word of Christ, this man simply arises. And then, you know what he does? He bends back over to pick up his mat. And then he straightens back up and he begins to walk. He does all that without falling over. Somehow he has balance. He has the muscles to be able to do that. And he can walk off. And as we see in, in the next part of the text, walk off to a place where the authorities are like, Hey, what are you doing there? <laughs> You're not supposed to be doing that. See, this is how fully the Word of Christ can change a person. And this is how powerful the Word of Christ is. Now, if we were to continue down through verse 16, which we'll have to save for next time, we would see that this man, yes, is about to receive grief from the Jewish authorities for following Christ's Word. And sometimes we also experience grief in lives because, in our lives because we're following Christ's word. We'll also consider how this man responds. Is he responding in faith or something else? But for now, I want you to see just how encouraging this text is. Because you may feel like your faith is inadequate. Maybe Your gratitude could be more forthcoming. Maybe you feel like your faith is lame. Like this man's ability to move. You know, we can do more. Here's the thing. If you feel like your faith isn't adequate, it probably is. And if you feel like you could be more gracious and, 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 and exercise more gratitude to God, you probably can. And really, the truth is you can. You can do more. You can always do more. And you start to think, well, oh, you know, maybe I have all the problems in my life because God helps those who help themselves and I'm not doing enough to help myself. That's not it. See, the compassionate Savior comes to a man who exercises no faith in Him and heals Him without so much a word of gratitude in return. If if the Lord can do that with this man's body, what can He do with your soul? Yes, you may feel like you can do more and Yeah, you could do more. But He doesn't save us because of how much we do. He doesn't transform us because of how impressive we are. He does what He does because of who He is. And so let's put our faith in Him. Let's not put our faith in works. Let's not put our faith... faith certainly in any object let's put our faith in his word we can trust that our shortcomings are not enough to cause him to turn away from us because we who believe in him are his for all eternity